0: Okay, let me just get comfy because my back is so sore today. Oh. No, do you like, need
1: a better seat than a piano stool? I
0: like a piano stool. Like, I like what it represents. Yeah. Oh.
1: Like, you could still break into a sonata <laughs> at any moment.
0: Well, not a sonata.
1: Or an overture.
0: Maybe an overture. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs>
1: Hi, Josephine.
0: How are you today?
1: Yeah, pretty good. How are you?
0: I am well. Um, I was wondering if maybe we should say our names more. Your name is Ruth.
1: Your name is Josephine.
0: Thank you, Ruth. (laughs) Thank thank you. (laughs) I just, um, I like the sound of your name in my mouth. Yeah, you do. (laughs) Hello, welcome. This is My Favourite Musical, the podcast, where uh, Ruth and I discuss our favourite musicals. That's right. That's it. That's the end. That's it. That's the premise. Yeah. Uh, we welcome you to this, this episode seven of my fate. Can you believe it's episode seven?
1: I mean, I can, but I also can't.
0: It's crazy. Yeah. And good. It's great. Yeah. I've never been this committed to anything. Right? Well, except my marriage.
1: Sorry, Shane. I'm not even this committed to my marriage.
0: <laughs> That's not true. Um, if you are so inclined, you can like our page on Instagram. It's a moderately good page. It's getting better. I'm in charge of it. so po- We're
1: posting some memes.
0: I love memes.
1: I love musical theatre memes because they feel like they were written for me.
0: They're so niche. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Incredibly niche.
0: Actually, there is a really cute photo of the puppies uh, that we deal with on a daily basis.
1: Well, I deal with it on a daily basis. Are you coming around every day? Well, I
0: say we because I feel like I'm part of this Yeah, family. that's true. <laughs> uh, please rate, review, subscribe, all that stuff. Um,
1: yeah, it really helps um, us, like – then we might get on like a newer noteworthy section or something like that. The more ratings and subscriptions we get, the better it helps.
0: Because I don't know how – I actually don't know how it works like on Spotify and uh, like the iTunes podcast app because – iTunes, what year is this? (laughs) Um, Because when you type in My Favourite Musical, we're like a million like results down the page. Well, I think we've come up a bit now. Oh, good.
1: The more people search for it, the better the results are. All these (laughs) algorithms –
0: yeah, things that I don't understand. Yeah, me neither. Uh, so, introduction of the apology hour. I thought went well last week, and yeah. I have one thing today. Did to you? Apologize I don't even for. have anything. Well, good on you. Yeah, that's really smug of you.
1: Yeah, that's me.
0: My apology is to my mother for the swearing.
1: <laughs> she better get fucking used to it.
0: <laughs> she said to me,
1: "Sorry, Libby." <laughs>
0: she just said, um, "Oh, I'm, I'm listening to the Oklahoma episode," and I said, "Oh, well, I'm sorry in advance for the swearing." And she said, "Oh, I haven't haven't got to that yet," and I said, "Well." You will.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> you fucking will. So, sorry, mum. And that's it. That's And for all future
1: episodes. Well, that I'm not going to stop. Swearing. Yeah. No, that's how you talk. <laughs> that's how I talk.
0: Oh, she didn't know that. But yeah, now she knows.
1: I even wrote down a couple of things this week to talk about.
0: You didn't? I did. Oh, what are you going to talk about?
1: We well, just, you know, some things that have been happening. I thought that was my job. It, it You're it taking is, it. But I also remembered to write down a few things. Well, good on you. What have you got? Uh, well, one thing was that we've been talking a lot about things that have been streaming during COVID-19. Yes, yeah, like live streams. Yeah. And so the National Theatre have been doing a show a week or, you know, from their professionally filmed Because they've ones. got a huge archive. Huge archive because they mm. release like t- almost all their shows get yeah. filmed professionally and yeah. released in cinemas, which is fantastic. It's amazing. Um, and they had A Streetcar Named Desire yes. was streaming this week from 2014 that was at the Young Vic in London. and I love that play. Same. It's yeah. what Tennessee Williams, when I was in high school, I was obsessed with Tennessee Williams. Is
0: Streetcar your favourite Tennessee Williams?
1: Probably. Mm. It's hard. Suddenly Last Summer was the first professional play I ever saw. Yeah. And so I have a real soft spot for it. And I used to do the, the last, say, 15 minutes of the show with this one long monologue mm. and I – learned that monologue when I was about 15 or 16 you just and did I used to your do bedroom? it in all these different things hilarious performances and it that was is quite too long.
0: self-indulgent it was too,
1: yes oh <laughs> I was an incredibly self-indulgent teenager let's be honest I don't honest. remember that and about an
0: adult. You. <laughs> um
1: but basically I used to do it at all these different performance things it was too long for me to do for my higher school certificate that's drama hilarious because performance. They,
0: they need you to do a 10 to 12 minute yeah monologue. it's like
1: 14 15 minutes oh no it's really long, but it's amazing. Jeez. Um, so, yeah, I, used, I and same it's thing. There's a, there's a monologue wrong. from Streetcar that yeah. Blanche does that I, that I learnt um, as well. Oh, you love school. a monologue, don't you? Oh, you know. <laughs> Teenage <laughs> me especially loved a monologue. It's
0: amazing that I'm allowed to be on this podcast at all. Like it could just be one long <laughs> monologue about musicals.
1: <laughs> it really could though. Which would suit you. Yeah, so I watched that this week uh, with my friend Jerry – we both watched it at the same time. She lives down in Victoria. That's And so cute. we both just started watching it at the same time and then we're just texting each other throughout. Aww, and it was kind of like we were going to the theatre together. And was it a good production? It was. I um, – it was um, Benedict Andrews, you know, the Australian film director – I'm sorry, stage director. He now directs films as well. Yes. And uh, so this was – he had sort of moved on from Australia at that point and was doing a lot overseas. Yeah. And he had that real style in those few years. Where, so for example, it was it's all filmed. Uh, it's set in the round. The stage was in the round, and the set was a constantly rotating um, house that rotated the entire show. Oh my god! Sort of an open house. And
0: but I then, think, like, that's just a bit much. When does the play become about the play? Then, like, yeah, when is it's it about true. the text? It's
1: true. And I actually I thought that. Um, Gillian Anderson. Gillian? Gillian? Gillian. Gillian oh, Anderson. God, she's hot. She, she, and she was ing- she was a great Blanche. She she's was amazing. the
0: sexiest woman yeah, yeah. to ever exist. And the
1: costumes in it were incredible as well. Yeah, okay. I really liked the costumes and she was amazing. I wasn't such a big fan of the Stanley or the Stella. Mm. Uh, their accents were a bit all over the shop. but uh, And he was American so he really had no excuse. But, oh. um, yeah, yes, I liked aspects of it. I, I also think it's a bit hard with a text like that watching a filmed version on your couch with distractions around yeah i know the course. play really well so it was fine for me but but it
0: needs your complete attention yes yeah. definitely yeah because it can't it can be, quite be quite like scrolling. scrolling oh it's dense yeah. yeah and
1: the accents are obviously very strong and yeah very southern yeah. but yeah, yeah i enjoyed it nice yeah so that was cool that is cool yeah
0: um, I have – what have I got? I've got news. The Seth Rudetsky
1: Broadway concert series has moved Stars online. Stars in the House? Oh, yeah. the concert series. Yeah, they look yeah, amazing.
0: Well, so they do. It's like it's become a weekly. So he used to do these like concert series. In Provincetown,
1: right? That's right. Yeah. But
0: they've now become like a virtual series.
1: Which is great because I've always looked at those series and, and wanted to go so badly. Of
0: course, because he gets amazing people. Yeah. So the first event, um, it's happened – Maybe
1: – which yeah, it will have happened already. Yeah, it happened the on the 31st out. of May. Yeah,
0: um, And that featured Kelly O'Hara. Yes,
1: love her. Calm
0: down, Ruth. But um, next up is going to be Jeremy Jordan. And then Ugh. after that is like Jesse Mueller. I would
1: watch all of these.
0: Well, so it sounds incredible, but ch- tickets are pretty steep. How much are they? $20
1: US. I mean, yeah, I would pay that. Definitely. Yeah,
0: I wouldn't. Wouldn't you? Well, no.
1: I feel like I love performers and you love shows.
0: Correct. Yeah. For that, like that's twenty dollars US per concert. Yeah. Also, the stream only happens once, so you go to that stream. It would literally be ten AM on a Monday morning here. That's like the hard I couldn't. Thing. Yeah, I couldn't I could not either. Yeah. So if you're on the east coast of Australia, it may not be the most practical thing to participate in, but it could be fun. Yeah. You can have a spare. I don't even know what the conversion rate at the moment is, but it's bad. Mm, it's it's bad. bad. It will be quite a few dollars. Yeah.
1: It'd but, be at um, least $30 Australian.
0: Yeah, I would say more. Yeah. But um, that's happening, which is cool. But also there's lots of smash news happening. Yeah, I had that
1: on my list as well. Oh, well,
0: sorry. I am <laughs> going to talk about it first. If you don't know the TV show Smash, it's really like – I actually don't know who produced it to begin with. What where? Oh, The channel?
1: Yeah. NBC. Oh, it was
0: NBC. Yeah. yeah, right. So it's just a TV show about the making of a Broadway musical about Marilyn Monroe Um, It was pretty big. It was a pretty big deal back when it came out, right? Well,
1: particularly amongst musical theatre fans. The
0: first season, I think
1: it rated okay. The second season was real. Yeah. It did badly.
0: Well, I think – in my head, like, I didn't like the second season at all. I liked oh, the first I season. Oh, I like the second season. Do you really? Yeah. Yeah, right. Well,
1: I love a lot of the composers. So the first season, all the music's by Mark Shaman and Scott Whitman, you know, who yeah. wrote uh, Hairspray and yeah. Catch Me If You Can. And and it's that uh, very old school Broadway style. Yeah, very classic. And, so, and so I love some of those bombshell songs, don't get me wrong. Well, it,
0: it does suit the idea of the show Bombshell, which is the show they're creating. Yes. Like, it should be sort of a more classic sound, yeah, definitely. And then
1: the second season, they moved to um, – there's Bombshell happening, but then there's also this kind of modern, edgy musical happening called the hit list. Yeah. And for that, they got a bunch of songs from a bunch of different composers. Um, Joe Iconis and Pasek and Paul and a bunch of different um, more modern, yes, musical more modern composers. composers. And I love a lot of yeah. those composers. So yeah.
0: But you also like like you're a big fan of a lot of the cast of that show and
1: like Jeremy Jordan.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we will talk a lot about or Jeremy. Megan Jordan. Hilty.
1: Yeah, well, you love Megan Hilty. Everything.
0: Don't you think it's weird that the whole premise of the show is that maybe Megan Hilty wasn't perfect to play Marilyn Monroe? Don't you think that's preposterous? The idea (laughs)
1: that anyone could think... Uh, this is me but she's not really throwing shade. But, like, <laughs> yeah, that in any way. A hundred percent. That it could not be her.
0: So the premise, for those who don't know, is, is these two girls who are, like, up for the role of Marilyn Monroe and sort of the whole season, the first season is like, oh, we don't know who's better suited to play Marilyn. But one of them, Megan Hilty, is is Marilyn Monroe. Like, she looks like her. She has the most amazing voice. Like, she's perfect. Yeah. So it's it's a flawed concept, I think. Yeah. Sorry, is it Catherine McPhee? Yeah,
1: yeah sorry, I Catherine just – I mean, I already kind of through-shaded her in our Waitress episode. Yeah, you did, didn't but, you? yeah, that She's anyone could think that she would be more suited to that role than Megan Hilty. It's
0: also – I think it would be very difficult for anyone to stand up next to Megan Hilty and look – and and look like a really accomplished well, performer because
1: she's so versatile. She's very good. And I don't know if you know this, but when her and Shoshana Bean were playing opposite each other in Wicked, Wicked. she was Glinda and Shoshana was uh, Elphaba. They would do this like the Megan Show show, yes. which was, and they would often swap, and one of the other one would sing Glinda and, and she would sing Elphaba because of course Megan Hilty has an incredible belt as well, and as well
0: as that beautiful beautiful soprano. Yeah. yeah, yeah, she's she's really really clever. So, anyway, the Bombshell concert live stream happened. So, they yep. did a concert of Bombshell ages ago, which was like a one-note-only event, but then it was just live-streamed recently.
1: Did yeah. you watch it? I haven't watched it yet. Oh, I watched I it. I think it's still on YouTube.
0: Yeah. Yeah, well, I only watched it a couple
1: of days yeah. ago. So,
0: yeah, it was all right. It was fine.
1: Yeah. It was something. I'm keen to watch it.
0: Yeah. If, you, if you're if you a fan of Smash, it would be a good thing to watch. Yes,
1: definitely. Um,
0: but as well as this, the Smash musical has been announced. Yes.
1: Which is pretty cool. Which is quite astonishing.
0: That's produced by Steven Spielberg. Spielberg. Yeah, he
1: produced the TV show as well. Yeah, it's interesting. What is a little bit controversial is that Teresa Rebecca was the creator and was fired at the end of season one and there's no mention of her name. I don't know how you
0: get fired from your own. (sighs) Wow. She was the
1: showrunner. I don't think it was – I think it wasn't necessarily her idea her for the show, but she came up with all the characters and the, yeah, and the story and everything.
0: man. Actually, that is a good point. I was talking to Shane. He listened to one of our previous episodes. I think it was about – it must have been about Rent where you were talking about the role of the dramaturg mm. and he – wondered what a dramaturg was oh okay and so I actually thought maybe there are some roles in theatre that we talk about offhand that maybe our listeners don't yeah have true familiarity with
1: yeah would you like to talk about the role of the dramaturg well essentially I mean I guess it depends on the show but yeah. in broad terms they would be someone who comes in to help both sometimes the director sometimes the writer. it really depends on the show and how it's uh you know constructed mm. basically to shape the story and uh, give them advice on those things, Uh, be someone who can help Make a through line mm. or, yeah. It's, it's only ever
0: sort of at the beginning stages of a show. Yeah, when
1: it's getting written. That's
0: right. Yeah. And usually that's sort of like, um, it's almost like a, a tenured role, perhaps like a creative director. Where this it, it is true. Sort uh, of some
1: theatre companies would have an in-house dramaturg, yes. for example. The, where,
0: where you just work on whatever the whatever the production is that yeah. is being worked on.
1: Exactly. Mm. It's sort of to help someone else see their vision in a way. That's how I always yes. have seen it.
0: Yeah, it's a cool role. Yeah,
1: it is really mm. cool. And it's so, kind of like almost partly a writing role, partly a directorial role sometimes depending on yeah. how it works. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So um, I've just got to be aware that we need to talk about those things as they come up.
1: Yeah, definitely. Because our, our listeners might not know. And the, And so, yeah, it's interesting that it's – a musical based on smash the tv show and not on because there was a long time of bombshell itself being a musical about marilyn monroe that would go to broadway
0: yeah Yeah. well i think that would i think uh watching bombshell on broadway would be better than watching smash on broadway so my theory
1: about this is just that they already have the storyline for smash they don't have to create a lot of an actual story yeah yeah.
0: but i mean yeah doesn't the storyline for marilyn monroe's life already exist
1: still a lot more work to be done there. Yeah. They only have a bunch of songs without a script written, Yeah, you know. But um yeah, so what was sort of annoying about that press release though is again not a single woman to be seen anywhere on the creative team or
0: it yeah, it doesn't it doesn't feel like it that the issue is going to be fixed anytime soon does nope. it? It really doesn't. No.
1: No. Yeah. It's just so common.
0: Screw you patriarchy <laughs> just in every facet of life. Yeah. God damn. Um, that's actually all my news. So my only
1: go- other thing was, yeah. you know, mere weeks after your Fiddler on the Roof episode is that a new Fiddler on the Roof film has been announced. I
0: know!
1: With uh, ah. Thomas Cale directing, Tommy Cale who directed Hamilton.
0: Yeah, I love him. Yeah,
1: and did the Fosse-Verdon TV show.
0: So, okay, when I first saw this news I was so excited and then I thought, well, but I love I love the original film. The Zero film. The style, yeah. The, no, the um, – Old film. Oh, sorry. Yes. So why should we? Why do we need a new one? Yeah. And I don't. So I'm gonna. I'm gonna reserve all judgment. But I feel very connected to that film. But I. W- I am looking. I'm just once again loving the fact that Fiddler on the Roof is enduring.
1: Yes, definitely. Yeah. And it's a masterpiece. I'm really hoping that. Uh Someone like Danny Burstein, who played it in the last Broadway oh, revival, yes. gets a shot. Like someone really legit Broadway yes. gets a chance.
0: That would be good, actually. He was incredible. Would it be good to see just any sort of legit Broadway performers really starring in these movie musicals? <laughs> ever. Just ever. Apart from Jeremy Jordan, I suppose. But I still haven't seen that, so it doesn't count.
1: Yeah. Last five years. Yeah. yeah.
0: Screw you, last five years movie.
1: <laughs> God damn. Um,
0: yeah, that's it from me. Yeah, that's
1: it from me too. Oh my gosh.
0: I think that's a record.
1: Yeah, probably.
0: Uh, Was it, is it me first?
1: Yeah, I think
0: so. (laughs) You don't know. I don't know. You have no idea. Okay, Ruth, today I'm going to tell you all about one of my all-time favourite musicals, obviously, (gasps) A Chorus Line. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Five, six, seven, eight. Okay, so A Chorus Line. Random, right? I think my love for this show is twofold. Number one. I adore the concept, I love the songs, I love the dancing and I love the simplicity of the whole show. Yeah. Number two, though, I think I love it because I will literally never, ever be in a production of it. Right. So I'm not a triple threat. Yeah,
1: I wouldn't describe Josephine as a dancer. I think you're a very good mover.
0: I can dance. Yes. I'm not a dancer. Yeah. So you (laughs) you can give me choreography and I will make it work, but I would never be in a featured dance role ever. No. So... And you, you just have to be a dancer for a chorus sign. You yeah. just can't get around it. You can't be a. Member. You could be Zach. <laughs> I could be Zach. The director. Although most of the time Zach actually he does, performs he gets at up opening. and does it. Yeah, it's true. Maybe I couldn't. Um, so what I think it actually means for me is that because normally, like, I would watch a musical and then be like, "Oh, I'd be See good at that in role." It. Yeah, yeah. Or, I'd, or I'd feel bitter because I auditioned for it and I didn't get in, or whatever. This one, I can completely remove myself emotionally from. Yeah. It. And just enjoy it. Yeah. And also, like, for me, there was nothing more amazing than really talented triple threats. Yeah, very true. And this true. show is just full of triple threats. Yeah. So um, it's just, like, yeah, a chorus line. It's pretty random. I think that I like it. But anyway. I got a lot of information that I'm about to tell you from the documentary film Every Every Little Step.
1: It's one of my favourite films of all time. Yes.
0: If you haven't – if you're into any anything – that we're doing here you have to watch every little step it's basically a documentary of the process of casting the broadway revival of a chorus line yeah. and it's almost like a chorus line within the auditions of a chorus line because you see just the heartache of auditioning for a show anyway it's an amazing documentary incredible and it's sort of interwoven with um original like um, interviews with some of the original creative team so it's just really well done
1: i remember i saw it at the mo- at the cinema Did you? 2009 when it came out. And the reason I know is because it was just my friend Zach and I, we had the nerdiest, oh, another Zach. We (laughs) had the nerdiest day ever because we saw that in Sydney in the cinemas, we went to the Performing Arts Bookshop in Sydney. I love that bookshop and uh, and Allen's when Alan's was yes, still there. Yes, the which is like a music, music yeah, uh, for sheet, sheet music, music and things. Back when you couldn't get things, you know, Amazon yeah. wasn't as uh, prevalent and things like that. And then we saw Patty Lapone and Manny Patinkin that night. At I the State remember Theatre. that night
0: very well. Yeah, yeah we it met. It was
1: the nerdiest day.
0: Yes, we met. Did we meet Patty after?
1: I got. I got. Pat, I think I got – I definitely got Patty's signature on my ticket or something. Yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Oh, that was a good day. Um. So, yeah, a lot of my information from Every Little Step. There was also a really good article called Behind the Line, The Creation of a Chorus Line by um, Signature Theatre. It was just oh, yeah. a really good in, – really interesting article. So, some basics. The music is by Marvin Hamlisch. Lyrics by Edward Kleban, book by James Kirkwood Jr. and Nicholas Dante, but uh, – well, firstly, Marvin Hamlish is probably like he's a dude you'd recognise from um, from like that film lineup. Well, yeah, mostly, he's a like, right? super famous film composer. So he wrote um, the way we were, yeah. and the sting. Um, there's a couple of other I can't even think. But he's actually I thought you'd find this interesting. He's the only other person apart from Richard Rodgers to win an Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, Tony, and Pulitzer.
1: Right, So it's not a just P-got. an EGOT,
0: it's a P-GOT. That's, That's amazing. Right. Yeah, so there aren't many people who've won the EGOT, but then he's won the P-GOT with Richard Rodgers. If Lynn
1: won an Oscar, he would have won. Yes, yeah. which
0: until we until we get some films, which is happening soon, mm. Lynn could. Um, he wrote also Nobody Does It Better from The Spy oh, Who yes. Loved Me. Um, so yeah, lots of good stuff. Uh but apart from A Chorus Line, he didn't really do – like he didn't hit a huge on Broadway. So this is sort of his big Broadway hit. Yeah. Um, and all of the other sort of writers there didn't really also have many other hits or any hits but many other works behind them. Yeah. Because the thing that I think is most interesting about this show is the creative process behind it. Definitely. So I'm going to get into that. The plot is – it's just an audition for a, for literally the chorus line in an unnamed Broadway show. Right. That's the whole plot. There are stacks of dancers who have to do this, like, punishing routine at the beginning. Um, Then they, like, they're culled down to 17 dancers. The director, Zach, tells them that he just needs, like, a chorus line of four girls, four boys. But Zach, the director, wants to know more about them personally. And so, like, throughout the course of the show, they gradually open up to him and each other with, like, stories about their lives. So they get into, um, you know, like, sexuality in their childhood and how they became a dancer and it's really just about these the story is just about the dancers with that sort of overhanging um idea that at the end you will only have eight of the 17 people will actually get the job on their Broadway show yeah there's a bit of conflict between Cassie who's one of the dancers on the line um who used to have a relationship with Zach um so there's a bit of that relationship conflict and cue that iconic song music in the mirror, which I will talk about. Um, But yeah, like they basically continue on with this audition and it goes all day. One of the dancers, Paul falls over and injures himself and he has to like get carted off to hospital and everyone's shaken up. And then Zach, you know, says, okay, it's time to cull you all down. And then they literally just, he just says goodbye to more than half of them. And there's eight left and that's it. That's like, that's the show. But then, At the very end, they all sing that really famous number one where they all suddenly now look like unnamed, you know, faceless chorus line dancers. So it's sort of like an interesting end because they literally end as these faceless ensemble members. Yeah. Which is sort of, I I don't know, I think that's the whole point of the show. Yeah. Okay, so let's get to the production. How it came to be is where things get really interesting. It's known as the non-musical musical musical or – I've heard it referred to as the first reality show. Oh. Which is pretty interesting. So it came along in um, 1975, had a completely ensemble cast. So there's no real star in the show. Like you could argue that Cassie is, is maybe the star, but she's really not. There's just no real star. There's no intermission in the show. Yeah. There's no scenery. There's no costumes um, except for that final number. So it's very sparse and bare. Yeah. It, um, it actually won the Pulitzer Prize for drama and it won nine Tony's. So it was a huge success. Yeah. Like when you consider all of those elements that you expect in a musical were missing, it did very well. Uh, so let's get into who created it. This is controversial. Michael Bennett was the original driving force of the piece. So he was um, he was a dancer himself and had like done a lot of work on Broadway in chorus lines on lots of different Broadway shows and then had started to like choreograph a bit of stuff himself and there was a bit of a downturn on Broadway at the time, like it was a huge economic downturn, mm. lots of shows were closing, um, lots of flops were happening and so there were, like people were really struggling to get work on Broadway, lots of dancers really struggling to find just chorus and ensemble work. So... The way the story goes is that these group of dancers decided to start sort of having these sessions where they would meet and just talk about their experiences on Broadway and and their life stories. And so they would meet and talk about what it meant to be a dancer on Broadway. And at some stage early in that process of these sessions happening, Michael Bennett was invited to come along to right, one of the right. sessions and the sessions were recorded and pretty much as soon as he came along to the sessions, he took over pretty much and just said, we're going to turn this into a show. Right. So while the the idea of the sessions, by all accounts I can find, were not his original idea, he sort of took those sessions and turned them into a concept for a right. show. So um, basically he decided then like – one of these nights they were doing these sessions and he was along and they were recording it, he just pretty much said, all of these stories are going to be the show. And then he sort of brought everyone else on board. So he brought Marvin Hamlisch on board and and the two writers of the actual script ended up sort of coming on board and, and solidifying it as a show. Yeah. Because before that it was just stories yeah. and, and recordings. So interestingly, the dancers who were involved in those original sessions sold their rights, sold the rights to their stories for a dollar each Yeah. Yeah. And then like once the show became a big hit, Bennett actually included them in a share of his royalties. Okay. Um, There's a lot more about this, which I'd love to talk to you about, Ruth. But um, it made a shit ton of money. Like just a shit ton of money. Like the off-Broadway and Broadway theatres that it was housed in were literally almost on the the – brink of closing and now they're like completely reinvigorated by the amount of money that this production made them like it was just unprecedented so it changed the game for all of those theaters and all the people involved um i'm going to talk about the royalty thing in a second yeah basically in terms of the storyline there was a bit of a problem with having 17 characters come forward and tell their whole stories like that would be quite a boring like laborious show if you had – because literally the way it's structured is you've got these 17 dancers standing in a line and they step forward and sort of say their piece and then step back and maybe there's there's a musical number. But if you consider 17 people standing forward at different times in the show and telling some sort of story, it becomes a bit much. Well, and
1: if the audience can sense, oh, this is just what's going to happen. Yeah, that's right. One by one. It's
0: very formulaic. It yeah. would it become quite tedious. So there was a decision that would – like Hamlish wrote a couple of songs that like incorporated multiple stories at once. So he wrote these like incredibly iconic songs like At the Ballet and The Montage, which is also known as Hello 12, Hello 13, that sort of incorporated multiple stories. So you don't get that fatigue of having a person step forward and tell you some long-winded story about their trauma. So it's quite cleverly constructed and you don't really know where the stories are coming from and how because otherwise, yeah, it would get super annoying. Yeah. Um, Basically... The stories – and I didn't realise this until I rewatched. the stories are sort of chronological, so they start quite simplistic and in each of the dancers' childhood, so each of the stories are quite mm. surface level and about their childhoods and sort of the way they started, and as the show progresses – the characters grow up in their storytelling and they also tell stories more about their early um, young adulthood and and sort of more serious subject matter. So yeah. as the show deepens, it really does deepen in themes too. So you get more into um, very serious themes. And these are all true stories. Like they're all mm. literally just from the mouths of these dancers who are involved in these sessions. Like you've got, which, which I find really interesting, you can mark the show by um, say – Dance – by the time you talk about childhood and by the time you get to Dance 10, Looks 3, which is also known as Tits and Arse, it's sort of the first adult moment of the show and then, bam, we're suddenly into adult things. Right. So it's sort of cool the way that that's structured. Uh, the show opened off Broadway at the Public Theatre in April in 1975.
1: It's also where Hamilton started.
0: I know. Yeah. Isn't it crazy? Quite a small theatre. Yeah. Um, Do It had – seats, I think. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. It had, like, incredible buzz from the start. Just, like, from the moment – the show like became sort of publicly known. It sold out instantly, mm. just immediately. Um, Joe Papp, who was the director or the yep. producer at the time, sorry, moved it to Broadway in July of the same year. So it was literally from April. Wow. It had sort of like, like two or three solid months, and then off it went to Broadway super quick. And then it opened at the Schubert Theatre. Yeah. Very well-known theatre, where it ran for 6,137 performances. Mm. Yeah, until April in 1990. This – but that made it become the longest-running the longest running Broadway show in history until it was surpassed by Cats in 97. Yeah. So uh, currently now it's the third-longest-running Broadway show mm. in history. But I thought you would find this interesting. Cal- o oh, Calcutta, right? Yeah. Briefly surpassed a chorus line during like – for being the longest-running show because at the time – so – Oh, Calcutta opened after a chorus line, but it ran more than eight shows a week. Oh. So for part of its run, it surpassed
1: a chorus line. Yeah,
0: because it was doing – I don't even know how many. So for those
1: listening, Oh, Calcutta – it is still one of the longest running it Broadway is. shows ever. But and it's, it is, so it's not it, known. The longest is defined by the number of performances, right? That's right. Um, and O Calcutta was kind of like a review, right? Yeah. I don't actually know a lot about it, but it's one of those shows that considering it was so successful. So
0: successful, but I, no one knows about it's it.
1: What, uh, I can't remember what it is on the list now, but it must be like number five or something It's still. in the top 10. Yeah, I know that definitely for in sure. the top 10.
0: And it, you, if you look at this list of the longest running shows, you, you, you have Phantom and Cats and Of mm. Course, Line. The like, Lion know, King. Wicked. know all of them until you hit o calcutta and you're like what yeah. what is this anyway so oh calcutta yeah did briefly beat oh, that's it that's amazing until it closed and then chorus beat it again so mm. i thought that was interesting also who was doing more than eight shows a week like what yeah, the yeah
1: that must have been either the union before the union had as much power as it does now yeah. or because it was considered not
0: because it was in the review. same way that like
1: uh radio city like, Christmas show can do, like, three shows a day. Yeah, that's true. There's d- different rules if you're not a yeah. sort of normal Broadway show. Well,
0: I mean, I don't know much about O'Kar Kata, but if it is a review, it's probably not as strenuous. Yeah. Because, like, you couldn't do a chorus line. No way. Back to back. Yeah. You couldn't. Oh, my God, you would die. Um, what's interesting is that a chorus line was still sort of in development after it opened um lots of things changed mm. so they were constantly taking i think because of the nature of the way it was created it was created in workshop and it had so many people collaborating on it yeah there was this sense of constant shifting which is probably really good and part of why it's so so enduring now is because it has been honed yeah you know like the process that rent never got a course line got yeah. it in spades so um originally random characters were chosen at the very end to be part of the final chorus line. So the actors actually didn't know who was going oh, to be. Picked, wow. And it was almost like picked on their performance that night. So if Ugh. you like if you were playing um I don't know if you're playing BB and you had a particularly awesome night where all of your Corey was spot on, you might get chosen. Ugh. And it's sort of nice because there's this is like genuine surprise from the actors on stage. Yeah. But it caused like a logistical nightmare because after the chorus line are chosen like they have to change costumes and yeah. so it was like a bit of a nightmare for costumers and backstage people so eventually they um they changed it and have like set people who get into the line but also originally cassie didn't make the cut
1: i've heard this story yeah and
0: so cassie is sort of she's the underdog in the story really because she's a little older and she her story is that she's had some mild success in the past and she's like she's been sort of successful she moved to la to start like maybe a tv career and it didn't really go off and she's a beautiful dancer like she's sort of known as this spectacular dancer and she does an amazing number in the middle of the show called music in the mirror where she's really begging for a role as a dancer because all she is is a dancer and that's what she's passionate about and she'll be happy if she can just dance yeah but you get the sense that because of the history between zach and cassie that he's just not going to really like, he's not going to let her in. There's too yeah. much history. So, originally, she didn't get in. And apparently, audiences just hated that. Yeah. Like, they saw this person slogging their guts out on stage, like, and clearly an amazing dancer. She should just get in the Yeah, they line. needed the payoff. Yeah. So, they decided to give that payoff. Mm. So, Cassie now does make it in the end, which, like, if you see, if you watch, uh, like, the original Cassie Donna McKechnie, I McKechnie, think. McKechnie, yeah. McKechnie, yeah. Um, if you see her do music in the mirror, you, like, this, you cannot imagine this character not getting yeah. in the final
1: chorus line. So I saw her in concert maybe about eight years ago. Yeah. Now. So she's in her – she'd be in her – she would have been in maybe her 60s, 60s at the time. 60s, I would say, yeah. Like, like, 60s. And she still does it in oh, concert. God. She sings it. And, I mean, obviously she's not as, no. you know, nimble and things as Live. she was back then. But she still the killed song, it.
0: For, for reference, like, it's a huge sing. Like, yeah. it's a proper belt. And then you dance your guts out. And then you belt again. Yes. And then you dance your guts yeah. out again. Like, it is – Relentless And the Corrie is tough. It yeah, is so tough. So, yeah, she makes it in, thank God. Um Some fun facts. Dance 10 Looks 3 was originally called Tits and Ass. Like the original name of the song was Tits and Ass, And apparently when they got to that part of the show, it just didn't get any laughs. And it's known now as like the hilarious part of the show. Yeah, yeah. Um It just it, like got no laughs. It almost got cut from the show because the audience just were not responding to it at all. So... Marvin Hamlish tells this story where he he just had the he was toying with like what would I do if I cut this song and he had the program in front of him and the list of songs was in the program Mm. so you see tits and ass on the program and he decided that he just had to change the name because he was just giving the punchline away Mm. and it's really true like when you see you know dance 10 looks three you don't really know that the whole gimmick of it is that she just had to get uh, plastic surgery and yeah she and then would, she was fine yeah that's right a fantastic storyline of course <laughs> but um it got laughs every night after yeah. that also the role of sheila was originated by kelly bishop oh yes who um you may know as emily gilmore from the gilmore girls who played um mum
1: that's right. I know
0: it's pretty random. She actually won a Tony for her performance. Right, a Sheila. A Sheila yeah, best supporting actress. Yeah, yeah, it was just super cool, and she was she's a beautiful dancer. Three of the actors actually won Tonys for okay. their performances, which was pretty outstanding. Did Donna McKechnie? Yeah, Donna yeah. McKechnie, um, Sheila, and the guy who played Paul.
1: Well, he has that amazing that monologue. amazing
0: monologue. Mm. Oh God! What, I know In I've every got this little name.
1: step. They show you the process of casting Paul. Yes.
0: And that guy's audition. Ja- Mark- Jason Tan. Jason Tan. the guy who gets yeah. the role. Oh, my God. He- His audition. Like, that's a study in how to nail
1: an audition. Right. right? He's got the whole panel crying have to say again if you haven't seen every little step and you're a performer even if you don't know anything about a chorus line it's if nothing it. else you get to see all broadway these people auditions. broadway auditions yeah. broadway level auditions for things and mm. you can learn so much just from watching that
0: can i say though it also made me feel just really awesome about myself
1: <laughs> because some of them are not that great no yeah a lot of them yeah sorry well I think probably it's hard because often we're say seeing like a bad singing audition and they might be such an incredible dancer oh
0: and they all have to yeah be. like you can't get to yeah. the singing audition if you haven't nailed that chorus yeah. so I would be eliminated instantly like I'd <laughs> walk in with a lack of grace and I would get cut <laughs> oh that's okay um some mentionable productions there have been so many productions literally everywhere of a chorus line Too many to really go into. I think, like, it's definitely worth listening to the 2006 Broadway revival cast recording, which is the um, revival that Every Little Step is based on. It's a really... There's not really any change to the orchestrations. Some tempos have changed a little. It's a beautifully recorded cast recording, I think, and the cast are just really tight. So I would recommend listening to that. You can listen to the original Broadway cast recording, but it has dated. It's it's just clearly from the 70s. So um, that would be my recommendation. Also, we just can't avoid talking about the film. I've never seen
1: it. Haven't you? No. You haven't
0: seen any films.
1: Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? But also this one's famously bad.
0: Yeah. Okay, so the film rights were sold to Universal in 1975. Like, so as soon as it made it big on Broadway, film rights were sold. So straight away, Universal was like, "Great, let's do this. Let's make a film." Universal then unsold the rights to PolyGram, and the film was released in 1985. So there's just clearly it was in production hell for a while. Mm-hmm. PolyGram then released it in 1985. It was incredibly unsuccessful. <laughs> like. It grossed $14 million from a $25 million budget. Yeah, and the reason is it is so shit. It's so shit. I actually love this film because of why it's it's quite bad. Yeah. I actually enjoy it. Like and I've watched it so many times and as a kid I really loved it but I loved it because I knew it was not very good. Yeah. So the film starred Michael Douglas as Zach. Hilarious. Shane, my husband, thinks the film is amazing. He really does. Like he's quite emphatic about it. He's like, and Michael Douglas is so good as Zach. You're wrong. (laughs) Anyway, it was also directed by Richard Attenborough.
1: Oh, that's so random. So
0: weird. Okay, but he, Richard Attenborough, famously famously said in this interview, "quote This is a story about kids trying to break into show business." End quote. And so, some of the original cast were fucking furious about this because their whole thing is that it's actually about veteran Broadway dancers sort of railing against. Um, you know, the audition process and trying to find one last job before it's too late. Like, it's not about kids wanting to break it into show business. It's about so much more than that. So, like, there are quotes from... Just
1: completely missing the point.
0: Completely. Like, you cannot have a director directing this show and you clearly don't know what the show's about. Oh, my God. Um, Some of the most appalling things about the film is that it replaced the montage, which is Hello 12, Hello 13, Hello Life or Love or whatever. It replaced that with... Like some trash song,
1: oh, just like a like a song written for the film.
0: Yeah, it also replaced music and the mirror. What? Yes, with this song called "Let Me Dance for You," which is also trash, total trash. Like music and the mirror and the montage are two of the most beautiful parts of the musical, and they were cut, but not cut for time, cut and replaced with something. Yeah,
1: what's with Hollywood just? picking random directors for these iconic musicals, like, like super mismatch, like Joel Schumacher doing um, Phantom so and, and Chris Columbus doing Rent. It's and so true. It's just a bizarre thing.
0: But, like, aren't there – are there not even people who maybe – like, for example, if Richard Attenborough was a really big Chorus line fan, for example, that might make sense, but he clearly wasn't because yeah. he didn't know what the show was about. So even if you were, like, a huge fan of the musical, maybe that would make sense. <sighs> Ugh. Well, anyway, so – The whole film was really a clusterfuck. It has a 40% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, (laughs) (laughs) which is – that's rough. That's really rough. Um, Anyway, let's talk about royalties and rights and stuff. So there's been some major controversy because – and you can help me with this, Ruth, because we've talked about this. Yeah. So the original – like the original dancers were given royalties – from Michael Bennett, like he was paid royalties, and then he like onpaid. he made the
1: decision to do that's that. right,
0: and he drew up a contract with those dancers after the show had sort of started becoming really successful. He had he drew up this contract um, with them, so there was this precedent that they would be like sort of credited and would receive royalties for the show because it is their it's their personal stories, and some of them are even in the production, so like they really did have like an integral role. Now later, as the revival has happened. Those like those original contracts have all sort of lapsed. Yeah. So a lot of those original debts as from the sessions had to really fight for ongoing royalties. Um and so there was like a, there was I think there was a lawsuit about it where right. they, they did sue for sue the Michael Bennett estate for ongoing royalties from the revival. Mm. Um and they were successful because I, I think I think the fact that Michael Bennett never made any um sort of secret of the fact that he had all this help creating it. Yeah. So he he originally had paid them, but it did open up a lot of questions about the role of performers as they're developing character for musicals because this has happened in multiple different shows. It's opened up a question about what sort of contract they – they should have and what sort of um, ongoing rights to residuals they should have. So like I know in the case of Hamilton, there's been a lot of discussion about the type of contract that those actors were given. Yeah.
1: So those performers in Hamilton really felt like once it had become this huge smash on Broadway that they, uh, you know, all these people were making all this money and they mm -hmm. felt like they had contributed quite a bit to the development of it and they basically wrote a letter as a cast to the producers and said, you know, we would like a share in the in the um, ongoing sort of profits and things. And in the end they did reach an agreement with them. Mm. Um, but, yes, it brought up lots of questions like that.
0: Yeah, so we um, – well, I found this like really interesting reference to the lab contracts yeah. that exist, which uh, they don't exist anymore, but it's sort of like there's a period of time where um, – producers of shows were I guess so they got so jack of paying royalties to actors despite the fact that actors had had great input in shows so they developed like these contracts that would sort of negate any right to claim ownership over any part of the show regardless mm. of whether you developed –
1: yeah, so my understanding was, so this was a strike that happened last year. Yeah, uh, So the, so Chorus Line kind of created the workshop contract. So if you were involved in the original workshop of a show uh, and you were an actor, there were two things. One was that you got a share of the box office receipts for any ongoing professional productions. But two was that you also had the right of first refusal for your part that mm. you played. And actually it seems to me that as much as um, producers were against possibly giving ongoing royalties in that way, a bigger thing for them was the right this of right first of first refusal, refusal for a yep. part because shows change and you might want new talent, you might want that person might not be suited to the role and how you see the show now. Yep. And so that was almost a bigger sticking point for a lot of producers then. And well, that did go away with If you this think about it logistically,
0: that's a huge undertaking for a show like A Chorus Line that has yep. 17 major characters. How do, you, how do you give those original 17 actors… yeah. Import in yeah,
1: that and line. like let's say you know when we talked about spelling bee, that role it became clear that that actress was not a good enough singer for what that role turned into. For yes. example, yes. So then there, you know, has, there to, has to be a way in which there's, and I think at the time it where well, you could pay them out quite yeah. a bit of money, um, but yeah, so. Over time, um, producers introduced this new thing called a lab contract. I think it was about 2011 or 2011. So. Is yeah, correct. that sort yeah. of became yeah. common. And in that, you got paid more when you did a lab, which is basically the same as a workshop. You got paid more per week, uh, but, but it, that was it. There was no ongoing yeah. royalty for you as That's a performer. Right.
0: So it is like it's like getting a contract that isn't just a performer. You're something more than a performer, but it's like a lump sum. That you're paid weekly to yeah. acknowledge that, and there's nothing else that you get. Exactly. Um, so they they've now, as a result of the strike last year, those yeah. live contracts don't really exist anymore.
1: No, well, there's like new tiered contracts. Yes, that that's right. Exist so instead. new
0: alternatives. Um, but it, it does raise, raise a really interesting question, I think, for like for performers ongoing and just like you spoke about it um, a couple of weeks ago, Ruth, in just making sure you you know what role you've actually had in, mm. the, in the development of something and yeah. you make sure that you're vocal about, you know, being paid correctly for yeah. that role. Yeah. So, I mean, luckily in the case of a chorus line, it seems like everyone is sort of, it's worked out well for everyone. Yeah. And it's literally been more like a profit share because it feels like this is such a collaborative process and everyone who was involved is being rewarded for that. I mean, I think Michael Bennett still, his estate's still probably far more, you know, solvent than anyone else. but.
1: But yes. he all yeah he was also the one to put like you know he was, he the, was the one to put one it together. together. I right. do know that one of the things that changed between that original workshop contract and this new lab agreement that they reached last year mm. after the strike um, was that one thing that a lot of producers had an issue with was that actors the same as so the writers the director all those people who are involved in that royalty pool get money from the total gross box office receipts so yes. literally a hundred percent of. Tickets sold, you get some percentage of that. Was that
0: regardless of the cost of the show?
1: Yes, correct. Oh. So what's changed now is that it is instead a percentage of profit. So once yes. the show makes its money back. I thought it would have always been yeah, that. Yeah, no, because when you think about, say, a writer, that becomes their salary in a way yeah. uh, when the show is playing. So it's to do with the total.
0: Well, yeah, I, I understand why someone like, like a writer would need yes. an ongoing salary, but it feels a bit much to say. Everyone gets a cut before
1: even exactly everyone's been paid. Exactly. Like, so instead now this new contract that exists, it's I think it's it has to the show has to recoup its original yeah. investment yeah. and then they start getting paid. Yeah, wow. That's yeah, which is again a much I would say fairer I way of doing fairer. it. And then it is about, hey, this show's really been successful, mm. we'll all share in the, yes. the success of it.
0: Well, I think – I mean, call me a capitalist. I do think it's important for the person who fronts the money to recoup that money. And that was always their argument. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm not a producer by any stretch, but yeah. Yeah. One so I, I do think that enough. this
1: is a somewhat fairer way of, yeah. of going about it.
0: I'm glad we've at least developed – like we've had those conversations. Exactly. So that's good. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm really dominating about chorus on Anna. That's fine. It's just so good. Okay. Gateway Songs. If you haven't listened to Chorus Line, I think you have to listen to. I hope I get it. Like it's got to be the opening number. Yeah, I think is your gateway because it literally opens with this like rehearsal piano and it's really sort of tinny. And you've got you're in the audition straight away. Go da da again. Yeah, step kick kick. You know, like it's it's iconic. Um, but other than that, some awesome songs are the montage, beautiful at the ballet. Yeah, probably. I'd say the most famous song of the show. You think at the ballet is? I reckon you don't think what I did for love, do you? It probably is.
1: I think, yeah, I don't think it's at the ballet because say at the ballet doesn't get done a lot, like yeah, an American Idol or a show like that. But that's true. But yeah. what I what
0: I did for love is probably the most commercial, yeah. poppy song from the show. So you may have heard that song. Um, also, nothing is a song that's done often by yeah. music theatre performers, um, well, especially say.
1: You know, you might be quite a young music theatre performer. Yeah, and that's
0: an appropriate song. Yeah. Dance Ten looks through is also pretty popular, but it's it's more adult, of course. Also, the song One mm. is quite iconic. I of, think that's
1: pretty famous too. One
0: singular sensation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's it's really just banger after banger. Yeah, like actually. Yeah, definitely. I could list the whole soundtrack. Soundtrack. That's right. Like that, <laughs> um, and you would probably have heard one or two of them. So, but definitely listen to. I hope I get it. Yeah i have got something in my throat.
1: Oh, do you? That's
0: terrible. That's me. That's a chorus line.
1: Awesome. I my, uh, my understanding as well is that it was kind of until a chorus line that originally there was very much a singing chorus and a dancing chorus and that a lot of these people who were the sort of Dancers in the show didn't necessarily, they were the dancing chorus yes. members. Well,
0: yeah, like even now, I think when we, if you're a performer and you're considering this show as a new idea, these ensembles don't exist anymore. No. The idea of a chorus line is literally, yeah, this they is just the dancing came out ensemble. to dance, That's right? right? So they come out, it, if you imagine like a Fosse show. With, like, your chorus line and you've got kick lines and things like that. That's sort of what we're talking about. Yeah. But just dedicated dancers and they're separate from the rest of the show. Yeah. So I think it's definitely more relevant for, like, reviews and, um, yeah. you know, those sorts of shows rather than what we know now. Because yeah. now if you're an ensemble – It's all integrated. You you've have got to, to do it all. Threat. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So I this like, is a different concept. I
1: like that because it – Sort of the bridge to what we now know as what a musical is in that sense, yes, yeah. in,
0: in that way, it's very much a snapshot of its time, a chorus line, like it's yeah. very much this was the this was the situation, and all the dancers in the original um, sessions had been on those chorus lines that yeah. was their bread and butter. yeah, so um yeah, it's really fascinating, but I think. Now we have sort of more of an idea of what reality shows are, and this is this is a reality show. Yeah, it's just an interesting way to tell stories, I reckon. Yeah, for sure. Mm. Yeah, for sure. love it. I love it too. Don't watch the movie.
1: <laughs> just don't. Yeah, so bad. We're probably due for a revival soon. A Broadway revival.
0: Oh, that'd be good. I
1: mean, it just feels like it comes around. Every well, I mean, then. it's the
0: third longest running Broadway show. They could, yeah. I mean, it's not like they can do Cats again. It did, it
1: really, did really well that last so revival as well. Cats.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's a really good revival. Oh, yeah. watch that documentary. It's so good. So
1: good. Every so little
0: good. step once again.
1: Yes. Amazing. Yeah. All right. Well, my show for this week. Yes, Riff. Is a little show called Matilda.
0: Oh, Matilda. Yeah. Oh, that's cute. Yeah. I didn't know that was in your top list. Oh,
1: definitely. Really? So Matilda, I, well, I've always loved Tim Minchin as a comedian, as a performer, I, like I've loved him for years. And so the idea of him writing a musical already appealed to me yeah. going in. Uh, I've seen him in concert so many times. He's uh, very funny. Before he's very he wrote clever. Matilda, for yeah, example. Yeah. Uh, and For
0: international um, listeners, he's, yeah, like he's a, he's, Grew up in Perth. He's an Australian sort of icon. Yeah, very famous. Um, and he's sort of
1: at this stage, anyway, had become famous as a sort of um, musical comedian. Yes, wrote funny songs. Yeah, incredible pianist. Uh, when he played, has and a lovely voice. Yes, and so I had always been a big fan of his. So I think I was ready to love the show before it even existed.
0: Did you like? Did you read the book? When and you were this a kid? is
1: it. I grew up. So it's based on a novel by Roald Dahl called Matilda. The novel was released in 1988 and Roald Dahl I – I only just knew this doing the research for this, but he was 72 when it came out mm. and it was only two years before he died. Like yeah. it was right at the very end of his career and life.
0: Most of his like very successful novels were towards the end of his yeah. life. Yeah,
1: It's funny though because James and the Giant Peach, which was sort of the first one, yeah. was like in the 60s. Yeah. So it's this huge career really. Yeah because uh, well, wasn't
0: yeah. he he was in the army as a young man yeah name, that's right like he was in
1: world war ii yep yeah. Yeah. yeah
0: maybe even the the air force i'm just guessing off the top of my yeah, head yeah you might be right
1: mm, um, i'm gonna look into that definitely military though yeah
0: but i feel like he was sort of high up in the
1: something mm. or others but yeah so this was very late in his life so it came out in 1988 the novel and i don't know about you but i definitely grew up reading lots of Roald dahl
0: 100 yeah
1: and i think that australians in general obviously he's british but it Roald Dahl, very popular in Australia. That
0: was, as a child, that was my, like most of my fictional diet yeah. was Roald Dahl. Yeah. And do you remember the Revolting Rhymes? Yeah. I loved had, it.
1: I had the cookbook that they released. Yes. Yeah. Of all his, all the recipes from all the, inspired by all his different works, <laughs> which was like very popular.
0: Yeah. And those iconic um, Quentin Blake yes, illustrations. Yes. That's
1: right. Yeah. And so, yes. Yeah, so he was uh, very popular in Australia, lots of Australia. And there's been some great movies, especially in the 90s. Yes. Well, and earlier. Obviously, the I love the original Willy Wonka film. Oh, yeah. Um, with uh, Gene Wilder. I don't like the Johnny Depp, Tim Burton remake. I think but it's interestingly, terrible. Interestingly,
0: the Johnny Depp is more, that, that's reflective more of the book.
1: Look, you might be right, but I love that original Willy oh, Wonka film. you will not
0: have me arguing yeah. with you. Did, you. did you ever watch The Witches? Yeah, and The Witches It'd terrified me as I a child. I had so many nightmares. So many
1: nightmares. Jesus,
0: don't, if you have children, please don't, please
1: don't <laughs> put that on, ever. It should never be watched. And, of course, I think it was about 96 that the – the Matilda film came out, yeah, uh, which we've was done
0: like um, Danny DeVito. Danny DeVito
1: and Mara Wilson plays Matilda when yes. she's a little girl, and uh, yeah, it's uh, it was a very successful film at the time, I believe. Very, uh, everyone watched it. Um, so it was Matilda was very much a part of my childhood already, so I was familiar with the story. I already knew that I loved Tim Inchon, so going into it, I think I was ready to love it. I was the same, yeah. yeah. And so I first saw it on Broadway, I think in 2013. So it, it, it had already been out for a little while when I saw it and just seeing it, I'd already been listening to the cast recording for some years, but seeing it just made me love it even more and the funny thing is of all the shows we've covered so far this is probably the first one I've done where I really have quite a strong professional connection to the show as well so so the company that I work for does the merchandise for this show yeah. all over the world so
0: you're immersed in it really. yeah so actually mm.
1: this show is still quite a big part of my life in my professional life That's um, cool. in terms of thinking about merchandise lines and different productions around I mean I yeah we've done the merch for productions all over the world in asia in in australia wow. um we do we didn't originally do the london production but now we do so with that london production is still running um
0: well not now but yes
1: well not currently Ooh. as of this time but we'll hopefully reopen when everything um
0: yeah, fingers Calms down. Yeah. So,
1: um, yeah. So, as I said, it's based on the novel by Roald Dahl. The story is basically that Matilda Wormwood, um, who is the titular character, she's a five-year-old sort of highly intelligent child. Um, and when we come into the um, into the musical, it's her. She's starting school because in the UK, I don't know if you know this, but everyone, it's just if you're five as of 1st of September or whatever the date is, that's when you start school. Yeah. That's the rule. Yeah. So it's not – in Australia there's sort of this choice of you can be four, you can mm. be five. It sort of depends in the January. But, yes, in the UK you start school. If you've turned five, you start school. So um, her parents, uh, Mr and Mrs Wormwood, are quite – Abusive and mocking about her intelligence—that's not important to them, and they're just very focused on superficial things and uh sort of quite ignorant people. And it's
0: a classic doll villain. Yes,
1: adult villains yeah. often,
0: always, and and stupid adult, stupid.
1: Villains. That's yeah. right. That's the key thing. Yeah. So they're very stupid. They love telly. They love their TV dinners. Yeah, you know, yeah. that's quite eating an ongoing junk, thing. consuming yeah. junk. And, and then, so when Matilda starts school, she very quickly forms a bond with her teacher, whose name's Miss Honey. And in case
0: you weren't sure that she's a good person, her name's Miss Honey. Miss Honey, yeah. <laughs>
1: Who and she really, you know, feels this soft spot for Matilda, and very quickly sees her brilliance as well, mm. and that she's such a smart child. Um, everyone at the school is terrified of the headmistress, whose name's Miss Trunchbull. Miss Trunchbull a former world champion hammer thrower, <laughs> and uh, at this stage, has only ever been played by a man.
0: Is hammer throw the same as shot put?
1: No, different. Oh, I think. it's a different.
0: I think sport. it's different. Okay. Yeah,
1: I'm oh, very sporty, so I should it's know the that. Same. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, me too. So, yes, yeah, so it's only been played by a man thus far in professional production. That's
0: very interesting. They
1: uh, They have never said that that's the only way it can be played, but I think because they want m- – Miss Trunchbull to be so imposing it's also generally been played by a very tall man
0: yeah well she's got to be quite terrifying to it, look at to
1: look at Miss Trunchbull next to Matilda has to be a very stark physical contrast yes because they sort of whoever's playing Miss Trunchbull they then sort of put like a big hunch on her back and these enormous breasts Yeah, and things like this and then so like enormous breasts but then like still a quite nose. a small lower body
0: yes <laughs>
1: like slim lower body so, well, so she
0: looks like she was
1: exactly like massive shoulders and back Back yes. And yeah. So the, um, you know,
0: in the film, the woman who played her also played um oh, Harry Potter's aunt. I was gonna say, I thought it must have been Aunt Marge. Yeah. Same actress. What is that? Yeah. I can't remember her name, but she's amazing. Yeah.
1: And so um it what sort of transpires throughout the show is that, and it seems to be because Matilda can't use her mind in the way that she really needs to, like it's sort of being suppressed. She's developed this uh, sort of telekinesis ability to, to move things with her mind. That's cool. And, uh, yeah, the, the the impression we tend to get is it's because she's not really being shown the love that she deserves and she's not able to use her abilities. Because do... it
0: always sort of comes out when she's frustrated or – Yeah,
1: that's right. Yeah, okay. That's right. Yeah, so that makes sense. Um, Yeah, so that's basically the show. It's pretty true to the book. Yes, it um, is. The only thing is that there's a whole B story in the musical about um, the, acro- the acrobat and the escapologist that she's telling to this librarian – throughout the, co- the course of the show mm. and uh, sort of at the end it's revealed that that's about characters in the show. And that's a whole B story that doesn't exist in the novel. Yeah,
0: it's a nice little metaphor. Yes, yeah. but everything
1: else basically is the same as, as the novel. Um, So production history. So it was actually originally produced as uh, – so the Royal Shakespeare Company are the producers of the show. So yes, I
0: did know this. Yeah, I so, like that.
1: You know, the Royal Shakespeare Company are Did they
0: commission – yeah, so thing. literally
1: like they're in Stratford-upon-Avon where Shakespeare grew up and, and obviously their main thing that they do is produce Shakespeare every year. Well, yeah. They have a, a theatre there in Stratford and they have a whole season of Shakespeare and sort of Shakespeare- Esque other works around the same period of time that they do every year. And sometimes those productions might do a tour around the UK. Sometimes they might go to the West End or to Broadway, but mostly it's like a subscription season of of Shakespeare. And obviously they get a lot of tourists um, coming to Stratford-upon-Avon. It's a wonderful town to visit, by the way, if you ever get the chance. Very rich Uh, in history. Rich in history about Shakespeare. Do one of the walking tours or something like that. There's some amazing history there. Um, So, yeah, so they commissioned – um, Tim Minchin and the book writer Dennis Kelly to um, create it. They do a Christmas show. Often it would be like a pantomime or whatever and the idea was to do a musical. Do you
0: know where the impetus came from that? Like- so
1: I th- I don't know if um who sort of had the idea first but it was – I know that they first talked to Tim Minchin in 2008 and at the time his comedy career was really just really getting go- – he was living in the UK, it was mm-hmm. really getting going in the UK – And essentially the director, Matthew um, Watches, had been hired by that point and they were looking for a a composer. So I think Dennis Kelly, who's the book writer, was already on board, um, who again has not really written like he writes very adult, quite yes. dark things. So it's quite amazing. That it just
0: seems like a really implausible, all of the yes, steps to get to the show exactly. seem quite implausible. It's
1: a real kind of kismet I yeah. think that happens for this show. Yeah. That these two quite dark people end up creating, because of course it is quite dark, well, but it's also yes. incredibly like joyful it's and like hopeful. Magical yes, yes, exactly. And very accessible for children. Yeah. And so um, they go to see... Tim Minchin do one of his comedy shows and and they're sort of like yeah he'll get the comedy stuff right he could be good but can he move an audience and then Tim Minchin sings one of his songs which is called White Wine in the Sun Mm. which is again it Listen to it yeah, um, if you haven't heard that song, especially if you're Australian, because yeah, I mean, God, if, especially if you're Australian and not living in Australia, because yeah, really there is nothing that more. makes you cry more. You didn't
0: listen to that uh, when you were in the UK, So did you? much.
1: And it was awful. You're funny. And it is just this beautiful song about not living, not being here in Australia yeah. at Christmas time and thinking back to it. And it, it's about. his daughter has been born and wanting so much to go back to Australia and have Mm. a Christmas at home in Australia and it is a beautiful song and it's true he can write incredibly moving stuff as as well as being so funny
0: so much of that intention in that song is really mirrored in like Miss Honey's character for example like a lot of that is really perfect
1: Yeah, yeah I agree I agree so it so it opens um as the Royal Shakespeare Company's Christmas show in December 2010 and of course is an enormous success mm. and very quickly they realise, oh, we should move this to the West End. So it moves to the West End in October 2011 and it's at the Cambridge Theatre and that's still running at that theatre. That's um, the theatre that it's still at now. Yeah.
0: beautiful theatre. And
1: uh, previews, it, it moves to Broadway as as it would. It's. I mean, it is a massive su- – I can't overstate what a massive success it is in the UK. Yeah,
0: it was just a runaway yeah, success. Yeah, and again,
1: yeah. Roald Dahl is British. He That – um, text is incredibly yeah, popular. Iconic. The mm. RSC is beloved. I mean, yeah. they were one of the original producers of um, Les as yes. well. Yeah. Um, they, they they're a they're beloved doing. UK company. So it had a lot of ingredients towards it being a success. And so it preview started on Broadway on March 4th, 2013, and it ran to the 1st of January, 2017. That's when it closed. It was nominated um, for 12 Tony Awards. Oh, shit. Um, and it won four. So it won um, Best Book, um, Best Scenic Design, Lighting Design, and the actor who played Mr Wormwood, um, Gabriel Ebert, um, won Best Featured Actor. So no Best Score. So this is the thing. Um, I don't know about you, but so Kinky Boots was the same year as Matilda. Uh, Did
0: it win Best Musical? It
1: it won both Best Score and Best Musical. I don't
0: think that's true. I don't think that is a fair decision.
1: It's a really interesting one because I remember at the time being so upset because Mm -hmm. I really loved Matilda and I couldn't believe that someone considered it not to be the Best Score and the Best Musical of that year. Yeah. But I think what we have to remember is a couple of things, is that the people who vote for the Tony Awards are in a very sort of Insular world. And the Matilda, I think, in a lot of ways, could have been seen as this, oh, the UK show is going to come over and.
0: Yeah, take over. Our beloved Cindy Lauper. Yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. Cindy Lauper. And Harvey Feierstein, of course, wrote the book of um, Kinky of Kinky Boots. Yeah. And you were talking about the production. Jerry Mitchell, who directed and choreographed Kinky Boots, is also a beloved Broadway yeah. person. And even though, funnily enough, Kinky Boots is set in the UK as well. Yes, I know. Uh, <laughs>
0: also, um, like, Kinky Boots isn't terrible. I don't hate Kinky Boots.
1: No, neither but do I. Don't I love but it. I don't think it's as good as Matilda it's personally. It's not. It's really not. And I think that there's also a little, there was probably also a little, Bit of a like kind of anti intellectualism thing that was going on, maybe a little bit where it was like, Oh, does Matilda think it's a bit too good for itself? Mm. Or it is quite obviously, it's incredibly wordy as a show. Mm. And, um, and whereas Kinky and of course, Kinky Boots, the other thing, it's the message of the themes that are in it about acceptance and about very important being who you are and all those things. I think it came at a time when marriage equality was, um, being made legal and things like that in the US. So, I think that there was sometimes things win those sorts of awards. Like we can't just think about it being only on merit. There are so many things that go uh, well, into it. But
0: that that to me is the problem. Like if you're With saying here is the Tony Award for best score, it should just be awarded to the best. Score. Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah. It should just be on merit, actually, Ruth.
1: I mean, it should, <laughs> but nothing exists in a vacuum. So, Correct. Yeah. And so, yeah, so it didn't win either of those. Meanwhile, in the Olivier's, um, it, the has, UK it still holds, yeah, the UK version of um, the Tony Awards. The Tony Awards. Um, it is still, so it set a record the year that it was on for the most Olivier Awards won in a single year, which was seven. Jeez. And Hamilton has since tied that. So they're still the tide for So clearly
0: the Olivier's have no problem with awarding American shows. Oh,
1: no. Well, then in fact, think about how many shows in the UK would be American imports and yeah. not, the other, you know, the yeah. other way around. So
0: Bloody Tonys. Um,
1: the other thing they did at the Tonys was um, the girl, the four girls who jointly played Matilda oh, got a special Tony award yeah, that year yeah. for theatrical excellence. Because um, they,
0: they were amazing, those yeah, little girls.
1: that's right. Yeah. Interestingly, of course, um, all over the world, generally you have to have a bunch of children play all the different roles. Yes. but in America they have different rules. So although f- they had four different girls play Matilda, the rest of the child roles, so like Bruce Bogtrotter, they no, they're not doubled. So those kids have to do eight shows a week. Correct. Oh shit. Yeah, which is quite common. So like Fun Home, say, which has kids in it, it was just those kids. They would have understudies, but wow. it's not doubled and tripled and quadrupled. What to like, like, like
0: school, for example, you or? have a
1: tutor. We, I, uh, a staff member of ours who works over there, she's a tutor by day. And, uh, yeah, that's what she does as wow. kids. Even up until you're in high school. So I remember when we did the Miss Saigon revival, uh, the understudy um, Kim mm-hmm. was still in, you know, her final year of high school. So she had a tutor during the day. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. That's so Yeah, you get schooled. You get to go to Broadway school. <laughs> And, yes, certain hours of the day are dedicated, dedicated to school. Dedicated to that. Yeah, so they did still have four Matildas, but everyone else just the one. Yeah, wow. And they're understudied, well, it's guess. a
0: big – Matilda is a big role. Like it's also even just vocally a big yeah, role in the show. Yeah,
1: exactly. So um, the movie has – we talked about it in a previous episode. Um, has been, It actually got announced some years ago, but it's finally supposed to happen very soon.
0: The movie version of the musical? Sorry, yes. yes. The movie
1: version of Matilda the Musical. Yes. Uh, it was due to start – shooting in August this year, but obviously I don't think it's going to happen on that um, time frame. And as we know, Ray Fiennes has been announced as being Miss Trunchbull. Trunchbull. None of the rest of the cast have been announced. They've said that um, there's possibilities that either Jodie Comer, who's in Killing Killing Eve, Eve, (laughs) possible for Miss Honey, or I think Emma Stone was the other one.
0: Oh, I hope it's Jodie Comer.
1: Oh, I think Emma Stone's really talented. Uh, Well, I've never heard Jodie Comer sing, but Emma Stone's got a great voice. But she
0: was in that terrible film.
1: Are you talking about La La Land? Yeah, that piece of shit. I don't think that film is that terrible.
0: Okay, so you know my mother, Libby, yeah. she hated that film. Okay. And if Libby
1: hates that film, then you've got a problem. I'm not a huge fan of the songs in that film, but actually as a piece of art, like when we talk about how it's shot and the idea of it, I actually quite like it. But I don't like the songs, so. No, I just don't
0: here's your problem Ruth you think you have to like everything I don't no you clearly do because you are saying to that you like a piece of shit that's what you're saying I mean it almost I mean
1: you're saying that but it was like critically acclaimed it's not like it's not like everyone else in the. it's not like I love a chorus line movie and everyone else in the world disagrees with me
0: but is it really critically acclaimed
1: yeah it was it almost won Best Musical. In fact, it did win. And then they said, oh, wait, it went to Moonlight.
0: Well, no, it, it did win Best Musical that year, but it didn't win Best Picture because they oh, sorry, awarded yeah. Best
1: Picture. Sorry, Best Picture. It shouldn't
0: have won Best Musical. It shouldn't have won anything. Yeah. Like, just because mm. – <laughs> anyway.
1: Anyway. So um, some fun facts. Um, Tim Minchin actually first wrote to, the, to Dahl's estate in about the year 2000 and asked for the rights to do Matilda. No. Yeah, so he was sort of working in youth theatre in, um, in Perth in at Perth, the time. Yeah. And – yeah, he wanted to do it with his youth theatre. They'd done some show like, you know, a few weeks before that they'd put on whatever and he wanted to do Matilda and, and they wrote back and said, oh, we're, we're always interested in people adapting, you know, the works. send us a, a copy, uh, some excerpts from the score and he sort of went, score, like sort of freaked out. Yeah. For one thing, he doesn't read or write actual music is at that insane. time which i think he now sort of does but yeah. at the time he didn't and so um yeah freaked out and sort of hmm. didn't do anything with it so it's actually kind of insane that his career went so far between the year 2000 and the year 2008 the which is when he started then, yeah for him, him to approach him then yeah. um, is a huge difference um and then another just thing that i love about it is that um, so when I grow up, uh, which I is in the, uh, sort of um, at the beginning of the second act, and "Naughty," which is the "I Want" song in the first act, mm. are the same chords. Like it's the same chords in the song, and they're kind of just for him, they're like inverted versions of the same. Yeah. Um, you wouldn't spirit.
0: You wouldn't know,
1: like you, no, and you wouldn't
0: know unless you, you know, like unless you played the score. It's not like I, I have quite a musically trained ear. Yeah. It's not, uh, and
1: it's I think the only apparent. thing that might make it obvious now to listeners is, of course. She sings a little bit of Naughty at the end of When I Grow that's Up. That's right. And it
0: fits in And it fits in perfectly. So when you hear that, <laughs> yeah. you
1: go, oh, of course, mm. now that you know it. But, yeah, mm. I love that that's – he just – he literally took that song. Yeah. And, um, yeah. So so beautiful. Some other interesting things about it is that um, – because Tim mentioned is very kind of anti the t- typical musical theatre tropes and things yeah. like this. So there was a few things. For many workshops, Matilda didn't sing at all. It was like he really wanted it to be this kind of – that's not how she expresses herself yeah. the character doesn't sing and then I think he eventually realised that she had yeah. in the same way that he um, didn't want to write an I want song for her and then realised that the character had to have one yeah. I think, and I do think that he probably learned over the process that there, some musical theatre tropes exist for a reason yes because in,
0: well in, also they don't have to look like tropes when well, you that's drop right. them out that's like, right and I think he's done a beautiful job yeah. of that but you still as an audience when you watch a musical you still have certain expectations of character journey yes
1: exactly yeah. and so North and quiet were written quite close to the end of the process, and they're iconic, great songs. Yeah. And so the other sort of thing that he always talks about is how there's not there's like one big note in the entire show, which is yeah. in my house, which is sort of a very small song that you're not going to expect it in, and that's yeah. why he likes it. But like quiet, which would be considered the big eleven o'clock number by the main ca- by the main character, it's is, a patter
0: song, really, isn't it? Well,
1: and it's about. Being Becoming as quiet and focused as possible, which is the opposite of what that song would normally do. Mm. So, yeah, he's really into those sorts of um, things.
0: Inverting expectations. Exactly,
1: exactly. Um, And I would say that one of the other things I find really interesting is that, and I love this as a kind of um, thing that exists in some musicals, is that he has – and it happens in both Matilda and his other musical Groundhog Day, is that the second act opens with a song that's outside the narrative of the show. So – as you're coming back in for the second act in matilda mr wormwood and and uh, michael the son are on stage and they they sing this song called telly mm. this is all i know i learned from telly and it's Which just basically the story no at all. not at all it's just mr wormwood it's and it's very much breaking the fourth wall he is singing to the audience yes. and it is just kind of this song in their world that that's like um, it's hot um
0: it's hot up here from Sunday in the park. Yes, George.
1: and like seasons of love yes. in um in rents. Yeah, are all it just take randomly. Place. Yes. As yeah. sort of they're in the world but they're outside the story. And Do you reckon
0: it's a way to like get the audience back in after I think it's table? supposed
1: to ease you in. Mm. And also because in the UK in particular where there's like a tradition of pantomime and things like this, it is that thing of and there's lots of kids in the audience yeah. where it's like kind of getting them settled. All right, well, let's get ready to watch the show again.
0: That's nice. Yeah.
1: And so actually originally it went telly and then they played the on track. And then it went into When I Grow Up. Oh, that's cool. And they ended up, I think, realising that the whole on-track wasn't needed mm-hmm. um, song-wise. So I think once it moved to Broadway, it's just a few bars of the on-track and then it goes into When I Grow Up. But well, the on-track is surely
0: the whole purpose of that is what is being done by exactly, talent. So exactly. So they don't need to double up. So,
1: But I also think it's interesting that in a way when I grow up, and I was actually sort of having this debate with my husband Andrew last night, and I don't know what you think about this, I almost think that When I Grow Up is similarly – Of the world but not necessarily taking place in the linear story – I always
0: imagine it as more of a, like a mental moment rather than a physical. Yeah. So So his his
1: argument was that because Miss Honey kind of comes on stage and sings at the end her verse um, that is very relevant to her character, that he sees it as actually taking place in the world. And from what I could find out, the only only sort of commentary, and I will say um, this, a great thing you can watch, um, Matilda and Me is a documentary that uh, was made for the ABC television network here and actually our friend nick happens to be the editor of it but that's yeah. neither here nor there um and it, shout out nick. it's a shout out nick and it's a great documentary about the process of it coming to australia being done mm. professionally in australia which is in about 2015 yeah and uh yeah it's really great and they talk a lot about the process in that documentary yeah, nice. and um i in, haven't seen that oh yeah you d- definitely watch yeah, it it's fantastic sorry nick and In that, the director mentions that when he wrote When I Grow Up, it was one of the first songs he sort of wrote, they were like – this is great, but it's got nothing to do with the story. Yeah. And so –
0: See, it does in terms of character, but it doesn't yes. in terms of advancing the story. It's the, the
1: world, story. but yeah. it's not – yes, that's right. So they sort of with see I you. It, mm. I think
0: Andrew's wrong. Well,
1: I, I think it's funny because I sort of even looked up the libretto and everything and Lavender sort of has her little monologue before it's on. And mm. we are in the world. Um, I, I think I think the argument can be made either way. But there's not a sense of time. No. No, I agree. In the song. And then it sort of moves directly into Matilda then going into the life library again yeah. and telling that story. Which that,
0: that feels like the beginning of the act. Yes. Mm. Yeah.
1: So it's an interesting one, but it is such a beautiful song when I grow beautiful. up that uh, it is just so reminiscent of what Tim Minchin does where it is both very sweet and you think it's going to be this very sweet kids song and then of course it's like what it is to be an adult and it just hits you yes it does it hits you in the feels as they say he has
0: that really special quality I think you know international um, listeners will have no idea but when you watch play school for example and you it's all for kids like the hundred percent is for kids but then the the really clever presenters will throw in those very adult moments that will go completely over a child's head, but the adults will just latch onto. Yeah. And I think he has that really special ability of yeah, doing that. Definitely. That's like the entirety of this musical is really aimed at adults. Yeah. But kids will enjoy it, you know. Yeah. Exactly. They think it's well for that them. is sort
1: of what they've said in interviews, yeah. is that it's an adult show that kids will enjoy, yeah. basically. Yeah. Um, and so in Groundhog Day, his other show, which unfortunately didn't do nearly as well mm-hmm. as Matilda, um It's kind of this random girl who's in the town that it's set in, sort of comes forward and sings this song called Playing Nancy about her experiences as a woman and you know, when you're the pretty one and, yeah. Uh, yeah, and it's kind of this, again, it's not part Super of the story random. and I actually love stuff like that. Yeah, me too. Um, but not everyone does. I. Th- it was a criticism I heard a lot of that show that it's like, duh, I don't need it, get rid of it. Um, not but, everything has
0: to be about moving the story forward. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Um, so that was interesting. But, yeah, I love that about the show. Um, the other thing I wanted to talk about is, uh, so what I love about this show is that it. Being developed by someone like the RSC, which has some government, it's government subsidised to a certain degree. It has a subscription model, yeah. So there's sort of money, money to be spent in things like developing a show that. Not you don't always get with a commercial production,
0: yeah. And but there's I, a lot of space to play, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. Like, mm. there's rehearsal spaces that exist, there's and money, people to, inbuilt like staff yes. inbuilt that can support the thing, yeah. And time often, time like many workshops over a longer period of time. Mm. And like, we saw a similar thing here in Australia with um, Muriel's wedding, yeah. Um, that Sydney Theatre Company were involved in the original uh, production of,
0: mm. and but that had a lot of space and time given to it, exactly. In development.
1: And I think that. That it's something that I really see time and again when those things happen you really get Good great cheer. yeah and not just that but different people are going to work on it than are in the normal musical theater industry so for example Bertie Carvel, who played um miss trunchbull both in the original london and in the and original the broadway, broadway cars um who won the olivier um i think didn't win the tony billy porter one for kinky boots yeah. but if it was any other year it
0: was billy porter definitely deserved that yeah, yeah
1: and if it was any other year i think he definitely would have won as yeah. miss trunchbull but he was Classically Shakespearean trained, hasn't he? Had never done a musical before. Hasn't done a musical since. Mm. Um, you know, one, one that one a Tony last year or the year before um for the play Inc which he plays Rupert Murdoch in yeah so different you know he's like a serious actor
0: do you know what I actually love about it is I think that is totally the spirit of Roald Dahl yes to, to just like this yes this is a musical but it fits none of your traditional
1: expectations of a musical and yeah. even
0: in our casting we are not going to yeah like, I just love that's that. that's right. think that's so Roald Dahl and
1: of course um in creating the most ridiculous characters, mm. you need it to be grounded in as much truth as possible. Well, yeah,
0: you couldn't get like a, a slapsticky sort of actor to come That's in right. and do that. Then
1: it becomes a caricature. So I
0: love that Ray finds. It's, yes, it's very it's serious. And very yeah. serious. Yeah,
1: definitely. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that there's definitely – and even things like designers would work on it, scenic designers and things that wouldn't necessarily always do musicals either might become mm. involved and bring a fresh set of eyes mm. as to what the set could look like or the world of the show can look like. The set was stunning. Stunning. So um, for those who haven't seen it, definitely Google a picture, especially if you like the show, but basically mm. it's like a book's Everywhere, everywhere colored books, and they cover the proscenium mm. and come right out in three D. Um, it's magical. Of, they, oh, it's a magical sorry, not, book not, world, and not just books, but letters are everywhere. Yeah,
0: like And it's not written letters, like the like yes, yeah, singular letters. Yeah. yeah, and mm. and
1: and if you look on the set, actually, you can find words that are spelled in different yeah. places, and it's really clever. The the the. The show really loves language mm. and how letters and words and can change the world and there's a great song called School Song where it spells out every, all the different words are like A, B, like it's yes. spelling out the alphabet. And as you go um, on stage, they are using these big alphabet blocks to so make clever. the alphabet, and yeah. it's it's really clever. Yeah, um, that's
0: why you needed Tim mention for this. I yeah, think.
1: exactly. Yeah. And um, the other thing I would say about it is that. Of all the shows I've seen, I think it asks more of the child performers than any show I've ever seen.
0: Oh, shit, yeah. Right? Although maybe School of Rock So, yeah, so
1: School of Rock came afterwards. I actually think that they probably realised what they could do for School of Rock once Once Matilda had happened. When
0: you look at some of those ensemble numbers with just the kids, it's Grueling, grueling. Like them. the
1: choreography oh, yeah. is—it's definitely the most choreography I've ever seen of children do. Yes, um, in a musical, definitely. Because yes. you just think the, of, the vocal, even vocally, like yeah. the number
0: of parts and harmonies in yeah. these kid songs. And I, I kind of love that. Yeah, and I, they're young kids too. Like yeah, so, they're, so the
1: girls who play Matilda are normally sort of between nine and eleven. So yeah, I think they they do it until they can sort of hit a certain height, basically. Yeah. But so she's she's playing she's a five-year-old, but it's often quite a small girl. Yeah, yeah and they're generally at between nine and eleven when they play it. Mm. But yeah, like... It's, yeah, it's amazing. quite incredible yeah. what they are sort of asked of themselves to. But I agree, School of Rock, then having to find kids who can play instruments as well is a whole other thing. And play
0: them very well, well enough to accompany the show. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. So um, I love Jeez. that about it. Yeah. In terms of gateway songs, um, so When I Grow Up that we mentioned, definitely, definitely. and Watch on YouTube, um, they've done that on a few different mm. um, TV things. They have these swings that they use that go over the audience. Yeah, And it is, I think we talked about it in Haiti's with the hanging lights that they have in the set simple, of Hades Town, but
0: fucking effective. So
1: effective and actual choreography that uses them yeah. incredibly in effectively. And, yes, yeah. which would have been really hard to work out yes. how the actual physics of it, they move and yeah. things like that. But, yeah, I, I love anything where something comes into the audience. I know that sounds funny. But it's You're quite a simple a, creature. I am a simple <laughs> creature but it is often quite amazing. Yeah, that well, you've I mean got ma- this that
0: moment when Mary Poppins comes out into yeah. the – in, on top of the audience. That's right. Huge. Huge. Amazing. Yeah. And, you're and yeah, like, logistically. Yes, how? exactly,
1: exactly. Yeah. So Love When I Grow Up, definitely listen to that. Naughty, which we mentioned, which is sort of Matilda's – great in, song. Yeah, like initial entrance and in her I Want song. Again, yeah. sort of talking about – Roald Dahl's so great at talking from the children's perspective mm. um, to the kids. But
0: without sort of like inventalizing them. Yes. Yeah.
1: It's like, hey, you know, not – Yes, you need to sort of do what the adults do, but sometimes they're wrong. Yeah and then you do sometimes have to be a bit naughty
0: yeah so for those of you who are unsure when ruth says the i want song this is sort of like a musical theater formula yeah that like um your main character in order to sort of progress their character have to want something in the show so yeah. there'll be some sort of like declaration of what they want what their intention is for the rest of the show so that's the i want
1: so song. like disney animated musicals in particular really oh, yeah. solidified this that's as right. a part of your world
0: establish the thing you want from, and your problem yeah
1: little mermaid and, and then we solve it yeah the show. exactly yeah. there's lots of them if you go through them yeah so Um, for
0: matilda it's the fact that her family don't get her and her family are pretty stupid so she needs to sometimes be naughty and and disregard what they say in order to achieve her own yeah it's
1: really common in musical theater and in fact almost all musicals you can go through it and define something as the i want song yeah um even if it doesn't it generally takes place towards the beginning of the show yes but not always sometimes
0: just sometime in act one really
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah um and then the other song that um, you talked about the kids doing on some but Revolting Children is uh, right at the end when the children really have had this revolution um, against Miss Trunchbull and, yeah. you know, freed themselves. And it, it is like this enormous – raucous song that the children do and of course there's a play on the word revolting yes. and it's it's just fabulous don't you
0: love every time i see that song there's such joy like the kids yeah the kids clearly
1: love it the energy yeah. is just coming out of every pore oh yeah yeah it's fantastic so those would be my gateway songs i would suggest there's some more beautiful. The, the whole score is beautiful it is um and definitely worth listening to the funny thing is i've actually talked to people who haven't liked the show very much or haven't really haven't Found with it. it boring and I just I I honestly find it so magical. I cry. It's funny. I say I never cry in shows. I just think because we've been talking about my favourite shows, I cry in a lot of my favourite shows. <laughs> but at the very end, and I'm not really spoiling anything by saying this, the last moment is that Miss Honey and Matilda, as they walk off the stage together, do a cartwheel mm. together. And every time that happens, I cry. It's beautiful. It is a beautiful moment. Yes,
0: it is. Well, because we're all Miss Honey. That's yeah, the point, right?
1: Exactly. Yeah. So,
0: um, interestingly, my oldest brother, Jared, Um, so unlike my little brother, Nick, who was forced to be involved in musical Cause I was, my older brother, Jared sort of was not. So he would always come along and watch me in musicals, mm. but you know, famously hated them. He, you know, used to be in like a heavy metal band and, um, he was not that long ago in New York and he rang me and was like, okay, I'm in New York. I've got to go see a show on Broadway. What mm. do you think I should see? And I was like, oh gosh, what would he enjoy? And at the time, yeah. Matilda was on. Yeah. But I think there was like, I think China that play China was on with maybe um, Al Pacino. So like there yeah. was some the like David Mamet. Was that the David Mamet? David one? Mamet. That's yeah. right. So I said, oh, maybe you should go see this straight play with some like famous actors in it. Maybe you would enjoy that. Like there are a couple of options like that. And he apparently said, okay. it was
1: terrible, so I'm glad he didn't. Yeah, see I'm it. glad
0: too. But he just oh, like he went off and was like, okay, I'll just go figure something out because I think I maybe even said just see something really typical like Wicked or something. Right. And he saw Matilda. Yeah. Not on my advice and he has never shut up about it.
1: That's amazing. He
0: loved it. Yeah. And he hates musicals. Yeah. But it was
1: so magical so magical and of course he would have had the sort of childhood where yeah he was something like that. Matilda he would have known the book and he, he, would, have the book, the he would have known the world yeah. yeah he would have known Tim Minchin probably that's it yeah. so it
0: just it really resonated with him and I think that that says a lot really like yeah. if you knew him you would yeah you'd be stoked by yeah. that yeah
1: yeah and I do think that I think that just for some people either they maybe they didn't grow up with Roald Dahl maybe they didn't grow up Loving Tim, mention whatever it is, but mm. and so maybe it's not quite as accessible to them. And I do actually think that that might have been a reason why it didn't do as well in America Interesting. as it has in the UK. Because in the UK, that's like a when you talk about those mainstays of shows like oh, yeah. Phantom and Lame Matilda. Ears, Matilda is it's about to come up on ten years of yeah. being there. Like yeah. it is one of those. shows. I can't see it leaving. Not like, any, if it well, survives I mean, this this COVID this pandemic. Is, but yes, yeah. All things considered, I yeah yeah. So, I used to
0: nanny in in London yeah. and the kids like we watched we watched Matilda the film daily and they loved wow. the musical like they'd seen it six or seven times yeah.
1: like and of course the other thing is in the UK that we don't really have here in Australia is that going to see musicals is really common oh, as yeah. a school thing that's so true um, whereas in public schools here um, you know government schools I never went to a show ever it's becoming more popular now like I took
0: my kids to see School of Rock last year yeah so we're trying well I'm trying anyway yeah trying to show it the it probably kids. does
1: depend on the teacher as well yeah of course yeah but yeah so what you see is a lot of primary school age children in the uk Same. just packing these thursday matinees that's great yeah so Ugh. it's uh and it you'll see them open. all um they've got little um neon vests on like like you would see on like a traffic warden oh that's cute yeah they all Do wear they have them.
0: that you know that rope
1: yes that they hold they all they hold, hold, on hold to. onto the rope. yeah so <laughs> if you're if you're around the west end at like one thirty on a Thursday or a Wednesday, they have both Wednesday and Thursday matinees, depending on the show, <laughs> then you will see just these just crowds no of tiny children going to shows. That's pretty cute. Yeah, it is really cute. That gives cute. me a lot of hope for the future of the world. I agree. If young children seeing lots of theatre. But yeah, like I don't think Americans necessarily, no. they don't. They don't necessarily know Roald Dahl nearly as well as we do. They don't have a
0: theatre-going tradition in young children, right? Not
1: young, young. Yeah. Um, I would say that as you get to teenage years, it's really common for schools in America to have a proper theatre and and school musicals over there are obviously really common. So I actually think as they get older, it's more common in America. And probably more common to
0: be involved. Yes,
1: true. But for the UK, I would say yes. When they're young, young, it's quite common. Yeah. And considered like a good cultural excursion. Well, I
0: know it's quite difficult because the students I teach are they're all boys and there's like a big sports culture in my world so even just basic theatre and etiquette Etiquette, is actually sort of assumed knowledge from a lot of people but these kids have to learn it somehow yeah
1: absolutely I'm fighting the battle on a very small front I appreciate it (laughs) (laughs) but yeah that's Matilda it's a wonderful show
0: it is yeah yeah Everyone should go listen to Matilda.
1: Definitely. Listen to the London cast recording, yeah. I would say. Accents there's there's both a Broadway one and a London one. Mm. And I would just say, even though actually the Miss Honey and the Miss Trunchbull are the same for both <laughs> recordings, I just think the London one is a little bit more true. The accents are just... Very slightly stronger, yes. obviously, because they're really particularly the in the kids. Yeah. yeah, um but yes, I just I slightly prefer the London one. Yeah. And they actually changed a few things for Broadway because they didn't think the Americans would get the British references. God, <laughs> words like nout, things like that. Yeah, they really? change. Yeah, Ugh. it's like you get it. You Yeah, need like you can meaning. you can
0: figure it out. Also, like yeah. These How are, many Americans do we in have isolation. to listen to every day? It's yeah. so true. <laughs>
1: it's just so true. Yeah. God damn you Americans. Anyway, yeah. Listen to Matilda. Listen to a chorus line. Oh, our connection today is that they were both at the Schubert Theatre. Yeah,
0: so when Matilda came to Broadway, it yes, opened it at the Schubert. it was also at the Schubert Theatre. Which is where That's our chorus little connection line for
1: this episode. Very tenuous. But yeah. <laughs> it's there.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, Ruth. That was fun. Yeah, it was fun. Uh, Do you want to do it again next week? Absolutely. All right. I will see you then.
1: Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.